You're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations. All while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. This is Fearless Business, and this is Robin Waite. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Mindset Monday. This is the, I think, third or fourth Mindset Monday, which I've done now. And today we're going to be talking about uh, two things, well, three things, really. Um, the, the subject of today is why and how we justify making incorrect decisions. As a business owner, we make tons of decisions on a daily basis, big and small, significant and insignificant. And uh, some of them right, some of them are wrong. Some of them we think are right, but they're actually wrong and they don't serve our business. And fundamentally, it comes down to two different things. So the first one is um, something called unconscious bias. And I'm going to explain what both of these are in a second. The second one is uh, something which is um, a little bit... uh, uh, sort of more on the intellectual side, which I'm going to try and explain to you, but it's something called cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, and I'll be explaining why and how these two things have come to fruition and why I'm talking about them this afternoon. So um, I've been reading a fantastic book or listening to the audiobook version of it. Um, this great book by a, uh, an author called Matthew Said. It's called Black Box Thinking. And he talks about all of these different scenarios whereby we, we justify making incorrect decisions. Now, in, in a lot of, um, in business, those decisions don't really matter that much. So I'll, I'll explain what I mean there. So it comes back to this whole process of um, uh, the reptilian brain. So you've heard me talk about um, when, we, when we're walking down to the river to get some water and we hear some rustle, rustling in the leaves on the plains of Africa, that automatically we run away because we've been tuned into the fact that we think that it might be a, a lion or a tiger or something that's going to eat us. But the reality is that in business, actually, that's, um, we don't have lions and tigers chasing us and actually there's not a lot to be afraid of. However, what it does mean, though, is that we have a lot of dissonance which creeps in. And essentially that that means that we're making decisions um, not necessarily we're, we're making decisions based on what we think is is the right thing to do it creates um, feelings uh, so emotional feelings so could be could be that fight flight freeze reflex but in lots of different ways and emotions but fundamentally um, whilst nothing really seriously bad happens, nothing really good happens either to balance it off. And we just end up stuck in this cycle. You know, um, I've talked about this on previous Mindset Monday around sell, deliver, sell, deliver, sell, deliver, and just going round and round in circles. And to me, the definition of success is, is definitely not defined by going round and round in circles. So let me just kind of explain or give you a couple of examples around like what cognitive dissonance is and why, um, why it's such a big deal because, um, and, and how we can start to learn from it. Um, basically, cognitive dissonance um, produces a feeling of mental discomfort leading to an alteration in, in one of our attitudes, our beliefs or our behaviors. 
um, in order to basically then it reduces the discomfort and it restores balance in us. So, um, for example, and, and by the way, this is it's um, the reason why it's it's cognitive dissonance. So cognitive is based around the um, a couple of things. So actually, it's not just cognition; it's also behaviours as well. So a really clear set example is when people smoke but they know that smoking causes cancer however they justify it and this is where the cognitive dissonance kicks in they justify it by saying that smoking helps me to relax it reduces my anxiety same goes for drinking and all these other bad things that we have in our lives and there are ways that this, that this can creep into business but i'm also going to give you a couple of examples that are non-business related so that you can hopefully start to um understand a little bit more about where I'm kind of going with this. If, so if this is starting to resonate with you, then just um, like shoot, shoot me a message. Um, I'd love to hear from you. And, um, uh, you know, if we get time, then I'll maybe take a couple of questions at the end or something like that. So there's two examples, um, really clear examples, which Matthew Saeed uses to explain cognitive dissonance, uh, one involving doctors in surgery or surgeons, and one in involving air airline pilots um, and an accident that um, uh, I, I guess... Um, it ex explains it really it wasn't like a complete it wasn't a di well, it was a disaster because you know about two dozen people died but it's it's a it's a good example um to explain why cognitive dissonance happens and uh sort of it's not always just about an individual either it's about collectively a group of individuals um why they why they um it, how they impact each other so the first example is um uh Basically, there's a 37-year-old woman who went into surgery to have a fairly standard operation, fairly normal operation. Um, and the surgeon, um, once they'd anesthetized her, there's this process which they go through where they, I can't remember, I can't remember the exact word, but it's intubate. They intubate you and they put a tube down your throat uh, in order to help with your breathing because obviously general anesthetic kind of knocks out some of your vital um, bodily functions. So they... Um, they were trying to intubate her, but her jaw was clamped shut and they were trying to open her jaw up. And, and um, when they managed to finally open her jaw up, they, they couldn't get the tube down her throat because there was something wrong with her, um, her larynx and uh, her palate was covering over her, the, the whole, you know, so the, the, the tube couldn't go down there. Um, in the background, one of the nurses walked in with a um, an emergency tracheotomy kit, and kind of said, "Oh, I've got I brought the emergency tracheotomy kit." But by now, there's now three surgeons, not just the one, three surgeons around this woman because she's been um, effectively starved of oxygen for eight minutes. Now they're determined that they want to kind of um, uh, get this tube into this woman. The thing that could have saved her life was the um, the tracheotomy. Sadly, um, she ended up being without oxygen, starved of oxygen for 22 minutes. So when she came round, well, she, she never came round. She went into a um, coma for 16 days and, and passed away. Um, but when Matthew Said kind of, um, when, they were, when they were studying this event, um, 
and this woman's life could have been saved um, by having the emergency tracheotomy, but there was a couple of things going on. So first of all, the nurse didn't feel that she was, she had the superiority to stand up to the surgeon and insist that um, they use the emergency tracheotomy kit, um, which would have saved her life. But also afterwards, the surgeon believed, or all three surgeons believed that what they had done, they, they, well, there was a couple of things going on. So first of all, they believed that it was just a, um, a sequence of events that was kind of out of their control and there was nothing more that they could do. Um, they, they believed that they had done everything that they possibly could do to save this woman's life um, and perform surgery. They were, and they just essentially kidded themselves, made themselves believe that this is what, it, um, that, that they, they, they'd done the best by this woman. Now, obviously that we know that that's not the case, um, but it, it's just, in terms of their mindset, they were trying to justify their position in not using that emergency tracheotomy kit earlier on. They believed that they could have um, intubated her and got this tube down her throat um, and saved her life that way. They believed that that was the right way to do it. Um, but also what was going on is um, it transpired. There was a, a sort of a massive cover-up, you know, and if essentially the surgeons just went out and said, you know, we tried our best. Um, I'm afraid things just went, there were a few complications, things went wrong. And, you know, so it's just this kind of massive cover-up that just snowballed and follow on followed on beyond that and um because essentially a, a surgeon is all about it's all about saving lives they do everything they possibly can to save a life that when things go wrong they just see it as part of the job and actually that's where the dissonance kind of kicks in the other example is where um uh there was uh, I, th- I believe it was um if you look it up flight 372 um the uh, the, flight 372 is an American, I think it's American Airlines flight, was coming into land and they tried to lower the landing gear, but there was a, a really strange noise. Um, and they believed that the landing gear hadn't come down. And so they went, went into a holding pattern around the airport because um, um, so that um, they had a chance to lower the landing gear. And uh, oh gosh, uh, somebody's just said, I'm so glad you're telling this story after I've had major surgery on Friday. <laughs> yeah, well, so, yeah, bad timing. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they put this plane into a holding pattern around um, uh, the airport whilst they tried to work out what was going on. Um, in the short version of it is the, um, they, they slowly began running out of fuel and the co-pilot was saying, we've got five minutes of fuel left, we've got three minutes of fuel left, we've got two minutes, we're out of fuel, we need to land. Um, but... Um, the pilot just wasn't listening. He was determined that he was going through protocol, reading the books, going through the checklist and trying to make, trying to work out how they could fix the, the landing gear. Anyway, so the plane ends up running out of fuel. They didn't land on, at the airport, but they did land. I don't believe everybody on the f- flight was killed, but the pilot was convinced. Well, one of the things when they interviewed the pilot, they said, well, how long do you think it you know, took you from um, the point of where we notified the disaster through to the um, so we, where, where the landing gear went down, you started to realize things were going wrong and when you crashed. And the time difference was like a difference in between like two minutes and 20 minutes. But the pilot was just like, he thought that he just had more time than he had. So cognitive dissonance, he was like, he was just so focused on fixing the problem that it clouded his judgment and he wasn't able to make the correct decision. Now, um, <laughs> the the thing about this flight was actually the landing gear did end up going down it was just an odd noise but he was so convinced the landing gear wasn't down that they couldn't go anywhere near the airport that um it ended up being a greater disaster than it than it 
actually was. Um, and so, but what, what was starting, and he started to kind of cover it up and justify his position that he, sh- he, you know, they shouldn't have tried to land because they weren't sure that landing gear was down and all these sorts of things. So the justification came out. But again, there was this thing where there was a, um, another member on the team, so the co-pilot, who didn't have the same superiority, um, didn't, didn't have the confidence to be able to tell this person, the, the pilot, no, no, you, you need to start listening, we need to land now. Um, so I guess, I guess next it's probably useful then when we kind of move into how does this, how does this impact um, on business? And I've, got, I've come up with sort of four or five examples where cognitive dissonance happens, albeit on a a lesser, like I said, in business, you know, I guess unless you're doing surgery or something more serious like that, nobody's going to die um, uh, through the small businesses which we run. Um, However, um, we live in a world where here in the UK, 350,000 businesses started up, but we've hit a tipping point where now the same number of businesses are going under every year. So 350,000 businesses went out of business in the last 12 months. Um, And what this tells me is that people are just coming into business like naive. They think that it's easy global marketplace you know there's six million businesses there's a whole world well in the uk worldwide um you know global marketplace so therefore business should be easy um and that in itself um is cognitive dissonance um so how does this play out in um in business terms then um Oh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to come. I'll, I'll come back to unconscious bias because I think that's important too. But um, so, how, do, how does how does cognitive dissonance kind of play out in business, and why did we why do we end up justifying making incorrect decisions within our business? So, one of the first things now on fearless business, all I talk about, well, not all of it, but like half of what I talk about is pricing. Put your prices up, okay? Now, there's this period of time where we kind of, I sow the seed about putting, putting your prices up um, and very slowly you then develop that idea and turn it, you have to kind of, it's, it, it fundamentally is changing your core beliefs about how you price your products. You then have to put that idea out into the ether. We've raised our prices. You then have to validate it and all, all everything that's happening here um, evolves over a period of time. So there's three things which go into um, pricing your products. Okay. So there's the idea of putting your prices up. There is the validation. So actually putting the idea out there and getting somebody to buy it. Um, and then the time which that happens over is three things happening. But one of the things that I hear the most, whenever I put this concept out into the, into the world of like putting your prices up is that we couldn't possibly put our prices up because no one will buy. Now, you have no evidence that nobody will buy. You're just going on a gut instinct, okay, on your existing core belief patterns. So there, you know, if, if you, you fundamentally know, however, that if you do put your prices up and you make more money, that your life will be better. So you have got, you have got some information to play off here. Okay, maybe you look at some of your comp- competitors and their prices are higher than yours. All right, but fundamentally, you know that if you were earning more money, you would be better off. Okay, now I know that we're not going to talk about happiness in this because obviously there's a, an upper earnings threshold for happiness and it's something like £60,000, $85,000 or something like that. Okay, um, so at some point you can only, earn, you know, when you get above that earnings threshold, your happiness doesn't increase, but fundamentally, you know that if you put your price up, you're going to be better off, yet you're sat there still charging the same prices as before. 
Okay, that's cognitive dissonance. Now, there's, there's, if, if you kind of start to dissect it, um, we've got data, I have data to show you, which proves that when my clients put their prices up, when Fearless Crew put their prices up, they're better off. And fundamentally, every client who comes through Fearless Business ends up putting their prices up and they're better off, okay? So we have a fairly, like, I, I, I probably need to actually get the actual data, the stats, but we have some really clear stats on that, okay? Um, it's it's the, the wins that people share in the, in the Facebook group right yet when fresh new people come into the group and probably even some of you now you're still there going i couldn't possibly put my prices up despite the fact there's all this overwhelming evidence that actually we're better off if we put our prices up so you're stopping yourself from making progress um and therefore in my eyes that's you're kind of trying to you then start trying to find reasons and justify why you need to keep your prices the same Okay, so the two the two things are then in conflict. So you have this behavior pattern and this thought process and the two are actually fighting against one another and you'll ultimately end up not making any progress. Right. The the second example I've got is the, is actually selling the wrong product. And this is something I see all of the time. So I talk about having three to five core products within your business. And when um when people then take those three to five core products and give them to the world and start the sales process, quite often they will, rather than take the Ford's approach, you can have any color car you want so long as it's black. Okay. You know, and how I reposition this, how we repurpose this is based on what you've put in your assessment form, what we've just discussed during your consultation, the product I'd recommend for you is package C and these are the reasons why. We actually then, um, or not so much us, it's normally our prospects, then start to justify why they should have the cheaper product than the one we've just pitched them. So we end up fundamentally selling the wrong product. We also know in that process that if somebody buys the wrong product, they're probably going to turn into a bit of a pain in the, pain in the ass client. So we've recommended product C because it contains all of the features and benefits that um, that client prospect want, need, wants and needs in that particular space and time. If we give them product A, which is cheaper, just because it's cheaper, we know that it's not going to fulfill all of their wants and needs. It's going to leave them feeling pissed off because they haven't got the right results it's going to leave us feeling annoyed because now the client's annoyed and coming back to us and it, it just it builds resentment okay but yet we still actively sell the wrong product to the right client okay a good example of this is um i once had a um someone who's possibly a little bit long in the tooth um she she kept she saw me handing out all, all of my books a networking meeting i gave away like 50 books you know and we're talking like 90 100 quids worth of value here right in, in terms of cost to me she's going oh if you'd sold every single one of those books you know one of those people a book you know for a fiver that would have been 250 pounds like why are you giving all this stuff away you shouldn't be giving stuff away and um i basically just said to her look you know the cost of the cost of me like 90 100 quid giving away 50 books if one of those persons people persons one of those people turns into a client um as a result of reading my book it has a positive impact and they come to me for more advice and they come onto my coaching program you know they're potentially worth two and a half grand to me now if i tried to if i was running around the planet trying to sell books for a fiver and nobody buys them i'm never going to know if anybody's a good fit for me 
So I'm kind of cutting off my nose to sell my, to, you know, and I, despite my fact, and, and, and what frustrated me or what's frustrated me is actually I've met several authors just in the last few weeks who are actively out there, just they're, they're just out there for book sales. Um, another example of this is a, um, an accountancy practice who were jumped on the GDPR bandwagon and were trying to sell 500 pounds, um, spots on a workshop for gdpr a day-long workshop now everybody out there was doing gdpr stuff for free like why would anybody in their right mind spend 500 pounds in a workshop like it must have been good but she was asking for help from me because she wanted to tap into my mind uh, into my expertise and wanted to know how to fill events so i said cool well um what is it that you do oh you're an accountant how much is each client worth to you five grand like over the course of a year wow okay so why are you trying to sell 500 pounds seats at a workshop you know when potentially if you filled up that room with 40 or 50 people delivered a ton of value did it for free and her answer was um again very telling but her answer was simply because i've got to cover the costs of the venue i've got to pay for coffee and food and this that, and the other blah, blah blah now i've run events it's a few hundred quid to put on an event for like 10 people and get some teas and coffees and things like that for, for 40 people in fact um you know the networking group i run um so I, I just said to her cool okay well um how many tickets have you sold so far and she said none i was like right well this is your problem you're trying to charge for something that everybody else is giving away totally for free when you're you're basically selling the wrong product to you, you should be using this as a lead magnet to get clients um so that the relationship between the different products is really insightful. So this is the cognitive dissonance where, and she was there just like, I must sell 500 pound tickets to justify the, the cost of the thing. But actually it was just, um, it was an op- it was becoming an opportunity cost um, because, you know, nobody ended up going to that workshop. So she had no potential prospects in it. Um, what else is there? So another example it could, around cognitive dissonance is when um, somebody doesn't pay you. And, and I know that a lot of people um, kind of, yes, business is very much based on emotion, especially like the working relationship with clients and things like that. It's like I liken it to an accordion. I mean, you put, push the accordion together, everything's very tense, there's a lot of energy in there and you pull it away and everything kind of loosens off a bit. So, um, so but a good example of this is when we ha- we all have clients in our business and quite often clients are just difficult and maybe they don't pay for example so um sometimes it's better just to write that rel- if things just aren't working out and the client has justified position and not pay or just just things aren't just working out sometimes and we know this it's better just to let sleeping dogs lie and just walk away from it yet there are so many small business owners out there who expect perfection in business that they've delivered a piece of work that should be paid like on, you know, day one after the invoice has gone out there, uh, that the client should be a hundred percent happy. Like we, we have all these senses of perfection in our businesses, which is fine that we, we need that in order to get better. Um, but like 10% of humans are idiots. Okay. Things are going to go wrong in business. Um, we're going to have problems. People are not going to pay. We, we know all of this, like fundamentally, we know all of this. There's plenty of evidence out there to support it. Um, however, we still carry that negative emotion around with us and it impacts the rest of our business, the rest of our work and our business in a negative, in a similar sort of negative fashion. So we have one bad sales call, which leads to like four or five bad sales calls. Cause we just can't get ourselves out of that funk or a client doesn't pay us. And we find ourselves posting all over social media saying, how do I get clients to pay? 
And then we get a ton of advice about, oh, you need to have contracts in place. And then we go, oh, we're too busy to get to like develop contracts. And like, it, and so it goes on. Whereas actually sometimes you just let it go, just move on. It's much more efficient, cost effective just to move on. Um, another, another, um, example of cognitive dissonance in business is the way that we compare ourselves to others. Um, and every, every one of you will have a set of core beliefs. You're in a different stage on your your, your business journey, a different stage on your fearless business journey. Um, you've got different stuff going on in your lives. Like some stuff is extreme. Some of it not so extreme. Sometimes you're exhausted, your health, like we've got so many different variables and yet we spend a lot of time comparing ourselves to other people, but knowing that our core belief patterns are different to theirs, knowing that our product is different to theirs, knowing that our business is different to theirs. And I mean, this shows up in real life as um, something called imposter syndrome. Um, if you want to know more about that, um, um, there is a great book. I will probably put it into the into the notes somewhere. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tag it in because I can't. Brain's just totally gone to sleep there. Um, but fundamentally, like again, imposter syndrome is a, is a negative comparing ourselves to others, creating this, which creates this imposter syndrome. We know is bad for us, yet we carry on doing it anyway. Okay, so there's evidence to state that, well, if you compare yourselves to others, you're actually no better than others. Um, if you're copying somebody else um, in terms of their work methods, whatever, you're actually, they're, you know, they're, they're um, evolving, creating, and they're getting better, and you're just stagnating. And then beneath you, there's other people who are getting better and evolving, and they eventually overtake you. So even if we're just kind of copying somebody and thinking that we're moving forward, we're actually not. We're getting worse. We're in a worse um, position and we know this all of you know this right um so we shouldn't compare ourselves to others because the ever like it's overwhelming evidence to suggest that we need to evolve and be better than our competition okay whether it's on your product or your pricing your value proposition your sales processes however good you are at marketing and those sorts of things um what else have we got so oh the um if you also look at the um, sort of client customer relationship as well, um, uh, when prospects are kind of looking at your product or service, they have a, a certain belief about what it is that you sell, how you work, the sort of person you are, how much you should charge and all so sorts of things like that. This is actually really, really important. Um, all of those different things I've just mentioned operate on a bandwidth. They're not fixed and final. So, um, for example, one person might believe that business coaching should be cheap. One person might believe that business coaching is expensive. And there's a whole gamut of like a bandwidth of, you know, from a scale of one to 10 in between that. And so whenever you, you meet a new prospect, you should be kind of like, you should have that diagnostic stroke assessment process in place because it starts to tell you about where your prospects core beliefs lie how much do they actually know about your business what you do how much you should charge and those sorts of things if the if there's too much of a gap between where your prospect is and where you are you need to have the confidence to walk away you need to your core belief system says needs to say actually fundamentally there's just too much stuff to educate this person on actually i need to just walk away and focus on the clients who believe in my value now it's quite hard because somebody who's like a six or a seven out of ten are nearly there but they're not quite and and you wouldn't really want to sell somebody unless they're a nine out of ten 
But again, this, this whole process as business owners where we think that everything is perfect and linear in business, we, we build up this core belief pattern, go, fundamentally goes against that. Sometimes it, it's aligned because clients are they are a nine or a 10 out of 10 and they're like good to go. But we forget that when we're faced with a prospect who is like a one or a two or a five or a six or even a seven or an eight. Okay. We, f- we forget that. And so we don't actually slow down and take the time to educate them. We just expect that they should know everything about our product and buy it and not question it. Okay. So, and, and then when they don't buy, we find ourselves justifying, like moving into justification, like why, uh, as to giving reasons as to why they didn't buy. So we're actually, we're actually no better off in that scenario. When, when a, a prospect buys our product or service, um, we find ourselves justifying like, you know, it's called celebration, but we find ourselves justifying why they did buy it. Fundamentally, it's just a matching service as to like how far they sit on that bandwidth. Um, if that kind of makes sense. And I, I actually wanted to just close on um, this notion of unconscious bias. Uh, I don't know why it's called unconscious, because unconscious to me is like being flat out on your back, like not, I suppose, yeah, this kind of does make sense. I was thinking it's more, it should be subconscious bias, because it's you're awake when you're going through this, like pre- presenting this bias. Anyway, unconscious bias. Um, so I, just as an example of this, so that this is basically where, I mean, you hear a lot about it um, in terms of like, you know, uh, racial profiling, stereotyping, and things like that, where um, without even thinking about it, we're um, already jumping to conclusions about our, um, people who we meet um, and, and various other sort of social situations and things like that. We do this a lot in business as well, depending on where and when and who we're meeting. Um, there's a lot of unconscious bias going on. But what I, uh, unconscious bias is actually a little, um, a little, it's a form of um, uh, cognitive dissonance. Okay. Uh, so just to give you an example of this, so I've, I put out some videos, three little videos, just, uh, just had some, they just had some sales tips in it, like two to five minutes long. They weren't, there was nothing like massively groundbreaking there. I just put them out there just to be um, helpful. And um, this person had gone and commented and they've since deleted their comment. So I didn't get a chance to see the whole comment, but I read the first part of it. And um, it, it started off by saying, and, and it was, it was a, the, what I used as an example was something to do with car insurance when you go to um, uh, get your car fixed. So when it goes in for a service. And um, he'd started off by saying, when you go and buy a car product, uh, insurance is just something that you have to get. And I was like, you've t- first of all, I was like, you totally missed the point. And, but the reason was that, and I, um, I, I saw his name and I got in touch and I said, look, just, just so for my own sanity, do you sell car insurance or do you sell insurance? And he said, yes, I do. So what happened there was he'd, all he'd seen was insurance and started commentating against that. And as a result of that, cognitive dissonance that was that unconscious bias towards the the insurance stuff he'd actually missed the point of the video which actually was about sales and i just wonder how many scenarios there are where you're going through your business and you allow your own unconscious bias your core belief systems um your um uh, you allow cognitive dissonance to happen, um, you know, obviously without even thinking about it. But I bet if you actually look back at it and said, gosh, have I, you know, we, we're sat there thinking that um, the clients are 
the prospect is or somebody opposite us is potentially the um, the stupid one. Oh, they just don't understand. But the reality is actually quite a lot of the time it's us missing the point because of our own biases. Um, and once you start to kind of unravel um, unconscious bias and cognitive dissonance and start to realize that actually it, it, it slots onto a bandwidth, um, then um, you, you actually start to win. The world slows down a little bit and you start to understand people a little bit better and you start to realize that the, um, the relationship between client and prospect, you know, client and uh, sort of um, business owner is actually very different. It's not two-dimensional. It's not three-dimensional. It's like four-dimensional because you've got your core beliefs, their core beliefs, whether the two meet somewhere in the middle on this bandwidth, plus the time that it takes for you to start to translate what it is that they're trying to understand. So you're both on the same, uh, singing from the same um, hymn sheet. Um, so, well, that kind of, that's about half an hour. So we kind of, I might just um, look to wrap it up there. Um, Wendy's just um, popped a little note on saying a lot of our behavior um, vis-a-vis cognitive dissonance are so ingrained and habitual that it's difficult to change. Yeah, but like I said, it's based around our core belief patterns. And so we are, we've got to justify our core belief patterns. We don't want to look stupid, basically. It's that simple. Um, so how do we change our behaviors? Well, first of all, so this is the same process that I talked about earlier on with pricing. It's a three-step process. First of all, you just have to have a simple idea in your mind concept that it could be different to things could be actually different to your core values, your core belief systems. So you don't have to change your behavior necessarily, but you just got to think that, well, what if the world did look like this? Could the world look like this? Could I behave like this? And then naturally you start to then rather than justify your current way of thinking, you can then start to re- find reasons as to why, um, why your new frame your new way of thinking may actually work could it work and then from there you say okay well actually what could i do to prove or disprove whether this theory this idea works or not so we go through that validation phase that's step two and obviously that happens over a period of time it should never be like jumping from a to b it's a process of like, it's just about data. We just gather more data to prove our theory. And if, if, we, if, the, if the, the data starts, the proof starts to become overwhelming in one way or the other, you know, positive or negative, we can then start to base a decision on it. But I think we're so busy, it's actually really hard to make these, to give time to make these decisions. Because um, a lot of the time they are very difficult decisions they take you have to be brave especially in putting your prices up like you've got to be seriously brave because you know that that you're probably going to get a few more no's than you would have got before but that's okay i you know talk about 70 10 2 you know for every two yeses there's there's 68 no's and that data's come from google zero minutes truth like every business has this huge inherent amount of failure built into it so i know for sure that i would rather be in charge of that failure rate than allow other people to be in charge of that failure rate if i'm there saying no to a few people as well and not taking on clients who are potentially a pain in the backside um then then i'm in control of my business but and then you know, just imagine though, if you go through one little cycle of like validating higher prices, it's actually going to be easier to put your prices up again. It's going to be easier to put your prices up again. And, and through this process, you're also getting better 
at under well better at being able to tell d- demonstrate your value proposition um, you're going to be getting better at delivering your product or service about packaging it up. You're going to be better at the sales process. You're going to be better at wrapping up your, your marketing, your messaging within your marketing that you're putting out there. Cool. So I think, um, if you want to know a little bit more about that, like I said, the, um, uh, the book I'd recommend you read is Black Box Thinking. It's by a guy called Matthew Saeed. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, I'd actually love to interview the guy because I think he's got some fantastic stories to tell uh, and a ton of research. He's got, he's, he talks about um, uh, uh, Dyson and their 4,000 patents and various other, um, uh, the, the Mercedes Formula One team and all sorts of really cool um uh, examples which he uses in the books in the book obviously i've given you like a uh, a 30 second sort of um intro a uh, 30 second 30 minute intro into kind of co- um cognitive dissonance uh, unconscious bias and things like that and how it can affect our business but um hopefully if that's helped you just to take a couple of little steps into t- kind of changing your way of thinking uh sowing the seed in terms of some ideas for your business now and then actually getting out there and trying it then job done um uh and I think that's probably going to be a wrap. Let's leave it there. Mm-hmm.